0: Today's episode of The Watch on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by the World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and Los Angeles, and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We're trying to raise $250,000, and if you have the means, it is an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it is a charitable donation once again that's theringer.com slash WCK.
1: I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now.
0: Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at theringer.com and joining me on the other line. Every time we talk, it's a conversation with friends. It's Andy Greenwald.
1: That was for the real Rooney hits.
0: Uh, we're talking about Sally Rooney today. We're talking about normal people. It's just normie peeps premiered last night on the Hulu Network and I gotta say man every time I hear Sally Rooney's name ever since I've done the Ferris Bueller Rewatchables I just think about Alan Ruck going Rooney! <laughs> Get a hold of yourself man! Sally Rooney I, you
1: did it man you
0: came she through did it.
1: Queen of Two Genres What's the other genre? I guess mediums Let yeah, me take right. that back <laughs>
0: <laughs> Woo, It's Thursday and we're, we're if it's a little steamy in here it's because we're talking about normie people uh it's we're talking about normal people and today annie and i will talk about the first couple of episodes all 12 went up and then the second half of the uh watch episode today we're going to be talking we'll have my interview with lenny abramson who directed the first six episodes of normal people and directed room and was a lovely guy irish director it was really cool to talk to him about how they brought normal people to life Greenwell, how are you
1: Before we get into it, I want to ask the question that is on the lips, if not the the forebrains of all of our listeners: Did you do your Bono accent for him?
0: No, I didn't. I find that it's these Irish accents are so authentic and beautiful. You know, just that that those those lilt's, and also he's Irish, so I probably would be very insulting if I started doing my Bono accent. Didn't stop
1: you with Colin Farrell. I did a lot of Irish. I,
0: I did a lot of voice work. With the Ronin rewatchables we did, where I imitated Jonathan Price and Natasha McElhone's Irish accents. So,
1: okay, so you got it out of your system.
0: Irish accent completists can find me anywhere, but not I I want to be clear.
1: I know Lenny Abramson is from the, the Green Isle, the Emerald Isle. I don't know what it's called, but that's why I asked because remember, you were once across the table from Colin Farrell and no hesitation, like Jordan in his prime. Uh huh. You uncork the mid-range Bono.
0: Yeah, it's one of a. It's a regret. You know what I mean. I. I <laughs> we've all got him. I thought. I mean. I think he rolled with it. I don't know if he. If I would say he loved it. You know. Right. Um. When you think about it, like it's pretty offensive.
1: <laughs> I, I've always found it celebratory, but okay. No, I get it. I, I, and I, the I thing know. is, is
0: that you really taught it to me. It was your insight into. Oh. It was. It was like your whole thing. Wasn't your whole thing like Bono makes this phone call.
1: It wasn't my thing. I mean, that was You Two's <laughs> thing on the Zoo TV tour, where he, yes. he would call Mr. President, and 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 he would say, you know, I don't mean to bug you. Yeah, I'm baiting you right now.
0: I'm not going to do it, Mr. President.
1: There it is.
0: <laughs> Reopen this country, sir.
1: <laughs> okay, Elon Musk. Um, you know, we we were just saying that that like, and I don't know if it's if it's reflective of our listeners' experiences too. Maybe right now you're listening to us on headphones as you take a perhaps suboptimally distanced walk in the world. But I would say once the weather turned here in L.A., people are getting real frisky.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of activity on the streets
1: right now. People are getting reckless. People are walking too abreast. And I was trying to explain this to Chris and Kaya earlier, but like, if you are doing that, I will give you such a stern, difficult to decipher look from the top third of my face, which is not covered during my so, run. So
0: you can paint the picture if you want to. You're, you're out there. You're keeping it tight. You're jogging it off. You're getting... I I,
1: I am running a lot. Yeah. and Because uh, what else does one do? And I am definitely running with my face covering on. And my wife was like, I'm not sure you should do that because I don't know if you can breathe. And I looked her in the eye and I said, I 100% can't. I definitely cannot breathe well, but I will die on lap five or whatever rather than give in.
0: Right. Right. No, these, I, my favorite part about your jogging right now is getting to go along with you in some ways because yeah. you come home. Yeah. You got the runner's high.
1: I got that endorphin rush. You
0: inevitably text me something that's immediately dripping with with enthusiasm and a lust for life where you're like, have you ever heard this Aphex Twin album? Holy shit. I just <laughs> drunk six walls to it. And then like an hour and a half later when you're back either like back in the professor's seat or just like contemplating what we're all contemplating, the cliff's edge is so steep.
1: It's so dark. <laughs> it's so and dark. And then you're but like, you know, I'm,
0: back in the ba- I'm back in the bad place.
1: One thing that you know about me is I live in extremes. I feel like that's what everybody knows about me. You know? Like, like I, I, either the life of the party or the death of the party. That's me. Yeah. So that's just how I represent myself out there. And if you see someone jogging, wearing a tight, tight fitted face covering, making an incredulous "get a load of this guy" gesture to an audience of no one. Yeah. No autographs, please. I'm just. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> no need to say thank you.
0: I'm um, doing my best. All right, so. A couple of times this year, this has happened where I feel like we've come across something pretty special. Now, that being said, I have not, I I have no pregame. We did not pregame on this show. So I don't know if you're about to come and zag on me here and say normal people more like hard pass or something. Uh,
1: I could do better than that. I would have been workshopping
0: for hours. I will say for myself that a couple of times this year. I feel like a show has really cut through the static for me, right? And um, really landed. Uh, and that—that's been Saul. That's been Ozark. That's been zero zero zero. And it's been um, it's been normal people. I uh, I love this show, and I think it's pretty special and pretty unique. And I, I have a couple of reasons why I'd like to talk about. But I guess let's let's hear what you think about it first. So you've watched two episodes.
1: What? Uh, where in your personal list of why the show matters? Uh, where do you place Sean Fennessy's observation of gra- and, and expression of gratitude that this is finally the show that made Irish people sexy again? How, how do you feel about that? Because I understand, Chris, I'm looking at you through the Zoom window and I know that you are torn because you are uh, a child of two great traditions, uh-huh. literary, sexual, and otherwise. <laughs> and half of you right now can look to the beautiful post-adolescence just exploring each other's minds and bodies on normal people and you feel a certain way and the other half of you i assume is watching the plot against america and you're like you're like (laughs) both of these shows are so hot like which 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 one am i going to take ownership of in my own personal archives
0: i think that uh vince vaughn's character from wedding crashers said it best when he said i get it just two kids who like to fuck trying to make it honest (laughs) And that's what this show is about. You know? <laughs> that's
1: the that's the quote. Um, I want to take it back. I I think the show is clearly something special too. I'm not gonna zag. I okay. but I I do want to kind of set the table because we have been making jokes about the extended Rooneyverse for a while, and now we can finally talk about it. And the truth is I wasn't really and, joking. And numbers I, don't
0: lie. People are listening, people are downloading, yeah. they're sharing with friends, they're like, these guys are on to something.
1: These guys, when I want to put my finger on the pulse of literature, particularly literature written by a 20-something Irish woman, we turn to these, let, let us now turn to our Irish sex correspondents, two 40-year-old guys who in their love homes.
0: Top Chef and yeah. zero, zero, zero.
1: This is finally clear of the field. We can finally be ourselves, be free. Well, no, I just wanted to talk about Sally Rooney, the the author, before we pivot to Sally Rooney, yeah, the for sure. uh, inspiration. And although she worked on the show as more than just the inspiration for this show and also conversations with friends is now forthcoming as well from this, I, I believe, some of the same team that brought us this. Um, so- Sally Rooney is one of those, every few years, there is a literary wonderkin. There's someone who cuts through the whole scrim of no one reads books anymore right. and becomes the person who writes the books that people read or at least buy. And Sally Rooney is, I believe she's maybe maybe just 30 now. And her first book was published when she was 26, 27, Conversations mm-hmm. with Friends. Normal People is the follow-up. Both these books are really good. That's just the baseline place I want to start and with. You, you and read them
0: recently, right?
1: I read Conversations with Friends last year, and I read Normal People um, at the beginning of this year. And they are they are super hot. They are super fun. They are very quick reads in the best possible way. Um, the best way I would describe her and uh, her, her particular gifts as a writer is she's kind of like a Geiger counter for the internal lives of young people. Her books are written very, very, very much subjectively, very, very much first person. And she has a kind of wonderfully affect-free affect in that she just seems to sort of tune her literary radio dial into the innermost thoughts and lives and emotions of these characters. Uh, In the case of normal people, it's between the characters who you've now met on the show, Marianne and Connell, and it toggles between them in first person. And it feels like a... She's just receiving the broadcast and then putting it on the page. There's very little frippery to it. And there's something that is so compelling about the way she communicates in her lives that it, and this is kind of a grandiose word, it kind of forgives anything else you might find fault with in the books because she's a young writer and she's still figuring it out, blah, blah, blah. But there's something that is so true about the tone and the voice that it is undeniable and it's also really pleasurable to read. And I guess going into this project, my main question was, how do you successfully make something so internal external? How do you stay true to what made the book fairly magical? When one of the things, for example, just to pull something out of uh, out of the out of the bag, uh, one of the things that made it so magical is the way she writes about Connell's inner life, for example, and much of what's happening inside of him is all the things that no one outside would ever be able to see. Sure. Um, the way he, the way he, he processes his own shyness and his class awareness and his shame and his desire and all of the way that turns. It's just sort of just a uh, beef stew. That's a big thing in Ireland, right? <laughs> There's like a big <laughs> chunky stew of emotions in his head. He um, spent a lot boy, of time I, wh- there. I could tell. People ask why I'm not a a published critic anymore. And, you know, I say, I I don't know. I've got the analogies for days.
0: If you were still writing reviews (laughs) and you were like, normal people, that's good stew. I think that would have negative page views. Yes. Like it would be people being like, actually sending notes being like, I refuse
1: to read this. What you call sexy, only AG has the courage to call beef stew. Anyway, uh, this is a remarkable adaptation. Yes. Already, it is one of the best adaptations I can remember seeing, because it, it does that thing that truly great adaptations do, which is hone in, zero in on the spirit that drew you to the work to begin with, and then subtly expands it, teases out other colors in it that you maybe you weren't even aware of, and blasts it out in technicolor, widescreen, beautiful HD. And the result is something that I'm two episodes in, and I'm already... Considering saying that this is in some ways, quote unquote, better than the book. Mm. That doesn't, that's not fair. That doesn't matter. We're lucky enough to have both, and Sally Rooney worked on both. So they are both products of her mind. One isn't in competition with the other. But they found something. It's Lenny Abramson's direction, it's the brilliant performances of these young Irish sex bombs that they cast. It, it, it's all of it. And it's very exciting.
0: I think that in some ways, the success of the book obviously makes some, a show like this possible. And, and in a lot of ways, it's almost like if it's the same way that if they had taken, you know, an Iron Man title and said, OK, well, Iron Man sells this thing and then we can do all these things underneath of that. And I, I, I think that it would be hard for me to understand if they were like, hey, yeah, like we just made a show about two Irish kids falling in love and then going on with their young adult lives. Obviously, there's like a, a lot of energy and buzz around it being an adaptation of a Sally Rooney book. But the relationship that's on this screen and the the way that they foreground... Sometimes you can't really uh, project the inner lives of characters on film. Like You have to kind of infer it. But the way that they prioritize their emotional interaction and psychological interaction with each other and with the world around them over any other real concerns, I think is maybe unique on television. I was trying to remember my favorite couples, my favorite love stories on television or even just the most famous ones. So like you go back to like David and Maddie on Moonlighting. You could talk about uh, Eric and Tammy Taylor on Friday Night Lights, the the various couplings on Mad Men. Um, Even some of the sitcom ones, you know, that people are always very excited about like the Jetta Fisher, John Krasinski one on, on The Office and plenty of ones like, you know, Ross and Rachel and Friends. They're always like, there's a coupling and then there is like the concept of the show is in front of it. Mm -hmm. So there's the world of advertising or the world of high school football or private investigative firm. Or if you like Grey's Anatomy, like the hospital and all the stuff that's happening there, all the stuff that matters in normal people is this, this relationship. That's what this show is about. It's not about how they deal with school or whether or not he's good at Gaelic football or, or whether or not she, um, whether she's like happier in Dublin than in Sligo, although all those things come up. The thing that matters is their relationship with each other and the impact that they've had on each other and what happens as time passes between these two people and the way in which they've dialed in on it. I talked about this on TV concierge, but the only comp I really can think of is the Before Sunrise trilogy.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's... One of the reasons that's a good comp is because you're you're talking about coupling and Mm -hmm. coupling as the the goal both for an audience and for the show itself to bring these people together. I think in almost any example I can think of, perhaps outside of those films, at least off the top of my head, what's communicated to us through the story and the storytelling is that there are two distinct strands, two distinct people. And the goal that they're both chasing is to become completely wound into some new um, extraordinary whole Mm -hmm. that is greater than the way they were Uh, apart. And I think one of the essential aspects of the book, Normal People, is its um, almost embedded reporter style of storytelling in which it alternates chapters from one character's point of view and the other character's point of view. And both points of view are legitimate and both are fully realized, even when they are in conflict with the other side of the net, so to speak. And one of the things that the show has already done in, in a way that I really admire is that it is it is about the coupling, but it's specifically about these two individuals who remain individuals even when they are coupling. Literally. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and you can see that in the very delicate dance of the first time that they sleep together, which is both a masterclass in consent, but also is very, very careful. And this is Lenny Abramson's camera. This is the performance. This is all the little details that go into it the show is absolutely committed to preserving our uh, perception of both of them as individuals engaged in something. Yeah. As opposed to two people who are subsuming themselves in this glorious orgasmic hole or whatever the goal of a romantic story uh, might be. And I think that's that's harder to do than it sounds.
0: And every choice is loaded. You know, I mean, I think that you, you alluded to the dynamics of the sex scenes, which are pretty steamy and um, like I think are, you know, they're fun. You know, they they definitely in the early episodes, like they seem to be really enjoying themselves. Uh, The interesting thing that happens over the course of a couple of episodes. So I'm, I think it's episode five or six or or whatever. I I don't want to spoil anything, but speaking in generalities. There's a moment where one of the characters does something to the other. Like uh, they have, they upset them. And in most shows, they would show how the offended person feels. They would say like, this person has had their heart broken and now they're, uh, they're mourning this loss of their their love or they're, they're hurt or upset and let's spend time with them as they kind of like recover from that. And instead they go and spend time with the person who perpetrated it, the person, the heartbreaker. And it's such an interesting choice because usually we are, we it it, it kind of strips away some of the uh, language that we used to talk about um, relationships sometimes where there's always somebody who's in the right or somebody who's in the wrong. It's more about These are just two people who are figuring it out. You know, it's not about will they or won't they. It's about who are they. And I think that that's the reason why even when you watch an episode and really like an episode can be as much as Connell goes and picks up Chinese food with his friends, sees Marianne at school. They talk a little bit. Then they have sex after school, but then he kind of is like aloof with her, but she's also rude to him. And then the episode ends that's that's an episode of normal people like there's nothing there's no island from lost here there's no you know Don Draper figures it all out at the end it's really 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 like life
1: I was reading an interview with um and I want to say his name like a Mexican spirit I want to say Paul mescal I'm sure that's not right but it's five <laughs> o'clock somewhere I'm guessing it's mescal but I don't know probably and he's talking about and he's 24 year old guy he's done mostly theater before this and he's talking about you know of course everyone's like What was it like doing naked sex scenes? And he spoke about the person who worked on the show filling a role that has become, and this is a good thing, that's become standard on most Hollywood productions over the last few years, and that's an intimacy coordinator. Yeah. And I can't think of a show better suited to have someone in that role than this show because it is not necessarily about sex. It is not necessarily about romance. The show itself is about intimacy and intimacy, meaning people navigating larger spaces as they do in, you know, the, the, the sort of torture box that is high school. Yeah. And then when there's a dramatic power shift. I haven't seen that in the show yet, but I am assuming it's there. It's in the um, it's in the book when they get to university and then even, even beyond Navigating these larger spaces, but seeking solace in the very small spaces between them. So, going from macro to micro and trying to find something in that intimacy and the sort of push pull in all senses of that. And so, when you're talking about a scene when someone, one character hurts another character, that is also intimate, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that it's the rare show that understands that as a through line that that's its subject matter. That is its. premise. That is its advertising agency or its uh, polar bear strewn island or whatever you want to call it. That is very rare. Yeah. You you know, it's very rare to watch on TV or in movies and look like let's pull it back on a business perspective. It's very hard to say I want to make a show about people and their feelings.
0: That's what I'm saying, Um, man. It's really
1: you don't you don't get to do that unless you do have the cover of a best-selling book.
0: Yes, and that this person has a ton of fans and that they'll be interested to see how this show is executed, plus maybe you get people who haven't read the book and are just interested in like the two characters. The show really also grabs a hold of something that I think the best shows about young people do, especially shows about people who are ending at the end of high school. Whether it's Days and Confused or Ferris, even Ferris Bueller or um, movies like that or stories like that, if you look at your young life or really your whole life as a series of roller coaster dips and you're know, going up and down that point right towards the end of high school is you're really at the top because you've you've gotten through school you probably know where you're going next to some extent even if you don't know what you're going to be doing there and you've achieved this kind of zero gravity feeling and you know as you go down It's only going to get harder. Things are only going to get more real and more adult. And you're about to go into this world where you're not the person that you had thought you were. And it was the thing that I think everybody feels like when they leave home for the first time is you just realize, oh, everything I thought I knew about myself, nobody actually gives a shit. You know, I have to reteach everybody who I am.
1: Can I just jump in and ask, since none of us have left our homes in over seven weeks, will we get that feeling again? Where I'm like, (laughs) I am...
0: Yeah, when I I, go... (laughs) When I see you get it, I'm like, here's the thing. I'm super into the dead. I want you to call me flower.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I'm going to be like, I am a long-limbed running Adonis who is also a in-the-flesh social justice warrior. Like, literally, (laughs) proudly. Like, I go out there. More
0: like daredevil. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And I, I put myself in the challenging situations. When I passed someone running around the reservoir the other day, I heard someone cough. I kept running, so you know. At eight PM tonight, be sure to cheer for the real heroes. Sorry. Not all back, heroes wear
0: capes, but most of them wear masks while jogging. Some sort
1: of facial covering. and, and,
0: and listening to Aphex Twin. Yeah,
1: uh, even where, when driving in a car, just to set a good example.
0: But you know what I mean. It's like they these these are two characters. Uh, they're they're at various levels of different levels of happiness with who they are in high school, right. and they both are aware that things are going to change for Connell. I think it's a little bit bittersweet because he's he's the man. In Sligo. He's he's the star athlete. He's the apple of everybody's eye. He's got a great relationship with his mom, even if they have lesser they don't have the same means that Marianne has. Marianne is basically an outcast, even though she's the smartest person in that school and doesn't get along with her brother, is kind of alone in this castle of a house and has like a chilly relationship with her mom, even though I, you know, it just seems like they and and then when they they leave and they're going to go to school like they they just, they they mix all that stuff up and that's what the, these stories about young late teenage and young adulthood are so good at capturing is that moment where all of those adult emotions hit you for the first time and when you experience them for the first time they feel unbelievably heavy.
1: Also, that anything is possible when you suddenly realize that rules that governed your existence, whether they are who you are allowed to be friends with, uh, what the limits of those friendships might be, the shape of things, that all of that is actually pretty arbitrary mm-hmm. and much more flexible in ways than you'd ever realize in ways that are both could be exciting or could be terrifying. And it's really, especially at that age, your social life as well as your own identity, they're just decks that can keep getting reshuffled. Yeah. And sometimes you're not the one doing the shuffling. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it takes a very, very steady hand to be able to communicate the mix of wonder and dread that is embedded in every one of those moments. Um, and so far, the show is able to do it. And, and, and one thing past that, I would say, and I'm curious about other people's feelings about this, I think that so far, the show has done a remarkably good job of um, pushing up the dials on some things that read very subtly. In the book, for example, Marianne's home life is, at least in my memory of the book, a little bit is is a lot more subtle in its early presentation. And then things come crashing down in different ways later in the story. And we, we won't spoil it, but I thought they did a very good job. And again, it's a very TV way of doing it, but there are certain looks and certain behaviors from her brother, like the scene when he makes her get out of the car. Yeah. In the first or second episode, that's not in the book. That's helpful. Yeah. You know, in, in, in understanding the that guy's a correct story. Yeah. There were, yeah. I feel like that's not a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Like that guy's got red flags all over him. Yeah. Just little things like that. And 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 you know, free of the subjectivity of one or the other narrators, like we are, like we're we're chained to in the book, we can the first time we see Marianne on the show, she wilds out on a teacher. Mm-hmm. And if we were reading that experience, and again, that's invented, that's not in the book, but if we were reading that moment from Marianne's perspective, there would be almost no way for it not to be justi- feel justified.
0: Yeah, she would be like, this teacher was insulting me and I, I and, came,
1: yeah. And if, and if it was from Connell's perspective, there would probably be, it would probably be couched in some level of excusing or forgiving in a way that, especially early on, we don't really know his POV yet, or his what, what motivates him. We wouldn't. We might push it aside, and so I think the the show does such a smart job early on foregrounding aspects of the characters that are going to be crucially important later. And then, even more specifically, you know, I started this by talking about how good Sally Rooney is with the internal lives of the characters. There's a moment uh, early on, I think it's episode two, when Marianne and Connell are together, and she's like don't you have any opinions? What do you think and what do you feel? And he's like, I have no idea. Yeah. No, that's the character. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's pilot writing 101 to be like, let us know what the characters want. You, yeah. have, to, you have to flash a, a and, sign. And
0: if it was a movie, he would have to say it. He would have to do a Crash Davis speech about here's
1: what I believe in. Right. And that is so defining and it was done very artfully. You know, I, I, I think... One of the things that I, I I try to pay more attention to now is like the moments when the moments when shows slip the medicine in, you yeah. know, and communicate the stuff that you have to, but sometimes you want to hide in the more fun stuff, and whether it's through really strong direction and just looks, you know, and cuts, or it's little moments like that, the show has successfully um, hidden the medicine, so that I think that almost anyone, and I would love to hear people's opinions about this on Twitter or Facebook group or whatever. After two episodes, I feel like you are, if you're enjoying it, I feel like you are buckled in and you have all the information you need.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking about this because we uh, discussed Top Chef. I think we were talking about Top Chef when we were talking about the sort of lost art of, Oh, I think we're also talking about Homeland, like the lost art of accruing Mm -hmm. goodwill for characters over years rather than Mm -hmm. six episodes. And it's become increasingly common that you really are only going to spend eight to ten episodes with a set of characters and, and a limited amount of seasons, if that. And um, obviously, this is a limited series, but I can't help but feel like this is the flip side of that. That this is the ideal thing because I feel like as soon as you see them, they're almost like a plant that's dying or something. Like, you're catching them in this moment of as soon as I see them, the shutter goes off and that image is fading. Like the image of, of their youth, of their innocence, of their initial um, wonder at one another and their connection immediately starts to fade and the finite amount of episodes and the finite amount of time that we're going to spend in this world makes it that much more poignant. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And I think that's also, though, what makes people at BBC or at Hulu and the, the particular producers of the show bullish, I think, on working with Sally Rooney because she's clearly uh, adept in both mediums. She wrote some of the scripts here. She was an executive producer and it doesn't seem like that was just a vanity title. Um, And so while there might not be a season two of Connell and Marianne, the Rooneyverse is real because she has an ability to create a vibe and a mood and a type of person um and a type of and a a type of person who expresses herself in a very particular way yeah and i think that that is a real opportunity so that there could be multiple series in this world now i'm not saying that this is a connell's mom just it's not the same i I would watch that (laughs) let me just stop you right there but i'm saying there's not but but I'm not saying it's like an. It, I, I, I'm not seriously saying it's an expanded universe where we will. No, see but it could be the a, a.
0: Like a a, a vibe it, that was like, oh, you want another show like this? Here we go. It
1: is a. It is it is the definition of a big mood. Yeah, and um, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, uh, do you want? Is there anything else you wanted to hit on this show? Or we can otherwise we could throw it to my interview with Lenny.
1: I think I I kind of want to hear the interview. I mean, I'm excited. How, we should we decide how we want to cover this show because did they drop the whole thing?
0: They, they put them all up, man. Wild so, reckless. What do you feel like your appetite is? Did you watch this with your wife?
1: I did. Yeah, and and it was a rare. She wanted to keep going, and I was like, let's 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 keep the magic alive. Okay. That's good. Let's let let us let's, let's parcel this out a little bit because there aren't that many shows we want. to
0: I know, watch right I know. I, I'm happy to do it. However, you want to do it. I feel like we could probably cover it in the next week or so, or the next
1: two yeah, or three what, episodes. Yeah, we, we'll say this. So, uh, hopefully, people have checked it out. Uh, hopefully, we haven't spoiled much, and we've encouraged people to watch it. And you're going to have this great interview coming up. Um, let's meet back here <laughs> on uh, on Monday. Okay. And probably by Monday, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we could probably have knocked out the first half. Sure. Yeah, right? I'm I'm alme- I'm already there. You you know how it goes here. I'm just I'm just talking <laughs> for myself here. I'm very reticent to make commitments on this podcast, but I will I will do my best. Just be
0: careful when you're doing your jogs. You never know where a normal people spoiler might come from.
1: Can I can I be you're, really you're giving someone
0: you? a scolding look and they're like, "Oh, I'll tell you what happens in se- episode 7." son of can a bitch. Can I
1: hate I am immune. I have antibodies. I've <laughs> That's read the right. book. I can haven't,
0: I, so I don't know. You know, the all these twists be, are new to me.
1: Can I um can I just, just put a little uh, postscript for the other mommingtons and Daddingtons out there? Sure. One thing that I am glad that I realized recently is that, you know, okay, well, let, let's start here. One new development during quarantine is my children know how to turn the TV on themselves now. Because <laughs> Because all rules are off.
0: That was the day the computers became
1: aware. And so no, it's <laughs> it's a gift. I'm very pro. Uh, but I did learn just the other day when I I had been saving the last two episodes of Ugly Delicious uh-huh. because I just love that show so much. And I really had a I was like a day, I was like, I really just want to watch the show that I enjoy and gives me pleasure. And so I, I I I knocked out the season. And it's fantastic. And uh What I learned the next morning was that on their way to a new episode of My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, the TV was frozen on a still of David Chang eating like a giant shawarma. Uh
0: huh.
1: Which is where I had left things off in Ugly Delicious. That was paramount in my mind this morning. When I realized with like sinking, I don't need coffee yet horror, that there was a non-zero chance that when oh, my children my fired up the TV box to watch Paw Patrol,
0: and they, they would little, learn. They got some Paw Patrol?
1: <laughs> they would get full Paw Patrol. There would have been a different definition of yelping for help Oh my coming God. from the other room. So my older daughter was like, I can turn on the TV, dad. I was like, dad's got it today. Dad is just mashing the menu button on the Apple TV remote like I used to mash the X button on the PlayStation. <laughs> uh, so I'm just saying, just, just heads up, Apple TV heads. S- stay safe out there. Get yourself back to the safety of the home screen before you quit out your show. And and, and everybody's fine. Yeah. Everybody's fine. Is there anything
0: else we should be telling our listeners to check out? I know that the Parks and Rec reunion is tonight. Um, oh yeah, that's crazy. You know, and then there's there's a bunch of shows coming up in the next couple of weeks, upload on Amazon. We'll have a couple of interviews coming up in the next few weeks, which are pretty fun, but you know, there's a lot of stuff. We'll we'll keep you abreast as as much as we can about what we're what we're checking out.
1: I almost kept my children abreast this morning when they turned on TV. <laughs> All right, that's enough from you. <laughs> I'm cut off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back with my interview with normal people director Lenny Abramson. today's episode of The Watch. It's brought to you by Billions. The hit Showtime series Billions starring Emmy winners Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. It's back. This season, the battle between Chuck and Axe reignites. And in this ultimate game of one-upsmanship, no one stays at the top for long. The scheming and sabotage will leave you guessing as loyalty shift and opposing forces collide. Don't miss the new season of Billions starting Sunday, May 3rd at 9 p.m., only on Showtime to try a free month of Showtime, go to Showtime.com and enter the code THEWATCH. This is an offer for first-time subscribers only, and it expires May 31st, so get in there. That's Showtime.com, promo code THEWATCH. I just wanted to welcome uh, Lenny Abramson to The Watch. He is one of the directors of two directors who work on Normal People, which is Coming to Hulu and is an instrumental part of bringing this show to life. And Lenny, thank you so much for joining the pod today. This is one of my favorite shows of the year. Uh thank you. It's lovely to hear that
2: and really a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, I've been having a hard time describing to people who haven't seen it yet what it is I love so much about this series. And, I, you know, sometimes the, the word magical will come out and I, I don't mean that at all. And I was wondering if you could help me. Yeah. How do you describe the show to people who haven't seen it? Because... On the surface, it's it's a
2: pretty straightforward coming of age story. Yeah, it's a really hard one. I mean, and, and actually, I think maybe the easiest way to talk about it is to say what it isn't, which it's not a high concept show, and that's why it's hard to talk about. It, in the sense that, like, you can't say, "Oh, yeah, it's a dystopian thing," or it's a it's one of those ones about a you know, there's no mystery at the start, there's no dark secret to be uncovered, there's no high concept sci-fi premise, right? And so many of the shows around at the moment, like fall into those sorts of easy to describe or kind of sexy to describe a uh, category. So it is exactly what you say. It's a kind of coming of age story. It's a love story. It's a story about intimacy. And it's a story about the sorts of like two young people falling in love, which tracks them over a kind of key four year period in their lives from when they're about 18 to sort of early, you know, 22 or something. But at the same time, it is sort of special. And that question keeps rising. What is it about it that makes it stand out? And so what what would I say? Uh, I think like it successfully shows intimacy. So it's very textured and you really feel like in a particularly strong way, maybe that you're with the characters, that you're really having an encounter with them.
0: Yeah, I found that my wife and I am watching the episodes are as emotionally invested with the happiness of these characters as we are with anything like, is even like Better Call Saul or, or or yeah. you know what I mean? Like, even characters who are under intense amounts of pressure and, yeah. and are bumping up against the underworld and crime, we feel almost- really as- nice
2: that you say that because Better Call Saul is my sort of all-time favorite of the current shows and I always use it as an example of like how when things are really brilliant. Yeah, that's great. But I think- maybe what makes it stand out is just that it's it's sort of truthful and naturalistic and really closely observed and that that's quite unusual at the moment. Like real people, people that you could recognize as, you know, living next door to you or whatever, like looked at really sort of honestly. And isn't it amazing? It turns out you can absolutely fall in love with them and unbelievably care about them without all the sort of, you know, the architecture of big plot or crazy jeopardy surrounding them. And so much of what they do
0: to make you fall in love with them is the most pedestrian, normal, everyday stuff. And one of the things that's the one of the miracles of normal people is the normal behavior. They're walking around town or campus, reading, working at a pretty regular job. It just feels so much like life. And you're able to, I think, I wouldn't say get away with that, but it it would be difficult, I think, to go and say, "Hey, this is I want to make a series where people just sort of go Mm -hmm. about their everyday lives." I guess partially under the sort of umbrella of it being from this this sort of hit novel, but also there is an elasticity to episodic television runtime now, where I think that you're able to cram all this interesting stuff in to relatively short episodes. I, I don't know. I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about the decisions made for how you were going to break up these episodes.
2: Yeah, that's a really good, you make a really good point because first of all, you're absolutely right that all, none of this would be possible if Sally Rooney hadn't written a brilliant novel that so many people loved. So that's where it all starts. And 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 that turns the heads towards this in a way that, you know, if you just went out, to, when, if we'd gone pitching to LA and said, guys, here's this brilliant thing. It's two young people, they fall in love. You know, mm-hmm. there would have been tumbleweed, <laughs> in the in the conference rooms of people would have been like, well, so are LA. they X Men or <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are their superpowers? Yeah. And so um, there's that for sure. And then you're right. The fact that we have this kind of we're in the world of streamers and and you can make things be what they should be is so important. So the thinking we had around it was, um, well, we knew it was going to be TV because the novel. It's I mean my my background is really film, but we knew this would be TV because the novel is episodic and it is. And it's also, its focus is detailed, right? So, you know, television allows you to do that and and uh, in a way where sometimes film imposes the need for this like massive arc or, or this one central huge event or something, which television doesn't sort of, doesn't kind of nail you to that. And then the normal thing for drama or the normal thing that has been the case for drama is that you're looking at 45 minutes to an hour. But I don't think that would have worked for us. I think there's something about this short, episodic format. So our episodes range from longest is maybe 35 minutes. Shortest is about 20 minutes. And what that lets you do is just go and say, takes the audience a bit like the book does and says, let me show you this thing. It might look kind of small from over there, but let me take you and show you this up close and track everything that's going on. And wow, you won't believe how fascinating and how kind of moving it is what's happening between these two people. And with the people around them, and if that takes 20 minutes, because it's like two or three really key scenes and some setting up, let it be 20 minutes. If it takes a bit longer, then that's fine, too. But you're not going, oh, God, we need loads of we need loads of events, loads that we need a B story, you know, everything that you might need if you've got your like conventional hours worth of of drama to handle.
0: Yeah, all of the sort of any B story, any sort so the supporting characters all sort of emerge through the POV of the two main characters that were are getting to know over these episodes. So there there isn't that conventional like and now for this is what the parents are doing or this is what the friends are doing or this is how this other girl or this other guy are feeling. I know with the adaptation of of Room you you obviously felt a really deep connection to the material you wrote this letter to um to the author about why you felt like you were the best person for for the material what what drew you to Sally's book uh, and what made you feel like you were the the right person to help bring it to screen
2: well when I read it um and I was lucky enough to read a copy before it was published via my longtime great friend and producer Ed Gauini from Element Pictures he's and I've worked, I've known Ed since we were teenagers. So it's got that we have this long oh, that's cool. connection. It's brilliant. And um it's the thing that other directors look at me with that's where the most envy ever comes from <laughs> is that I have a long-term producing partner that I trust and love, you know. But so Ed Ed said, read this, you're gonna love it. And I did, and and I did love it. And I think what got me is like there's a thing I love about the novel, and then there's why it might fit me. I loved exactly all the things we've talked about. I love the fact that Sally takes the intimacy between two young people seriously, that she writes about people who are young, but not like for a young adult audience. It's, it's absolutely for anybody. It's for people who love literature. It's for people who are in school. It's for, it just has this kind of extraordinary universal kind of appeal, but she writes positively about intimacy and about sexuality and about sex and she doesn't pathologize it or problematize it or make it like glossy. It's just, it's so well observed and so truthful. And it just reminds me of that phase of my own life and makes me think about my kids as they get older. And I don't know, it's just, it it was just this kind of level of detail and texture and truthfulness and observation, all of which is very special. And then, The other thing about it is she writes in a deceptively simple way. Like there's something really direct about her writing. She seems to just describe what's happening and what people are feeling and thinking without any kind of extra literary flourish, you know? And for me, there is a sort of spectrum of things that I've done, but there's a sort of central strand of work, which is maybe trying to do the same thing, which is to appear not to be present Mm. as a, filmmaker, you know, to, to give you a feeling that you're actually with the characters that you're, that I'm showing and that there's a direct relationship between you as a viewer and them and a sense of kind of encounter or whatever. And so Ed said, and I felt that there was a sort of fit between the way Sally writes and the way I often shoot. And then on top of that, it's Irish. I'm Irish and I still live here, and but I haven't shot anything here for like nearly a decade. And it felt like a really brilliant account of contemporary Ireland, which appealed to me as somebody who comes from here and wants to see it reflected on screen. And so, a whole bunch of reasons uh, made me feel like I should do it.
0: Did you find yourself personally attracted or personally connected to the Trinity stuff? Just because I know that you you, you went there, and I, I spent some time. I went to school in Cork for about six months in the late nineties, and spent some time in Dublin, and found that the Everything that you know, the debate society stuff and and the clubs, and also just the way how kids lived and how they would go back home on weekends, you know, is just so carefully and beautifully observed. And you know, you don't necessarily need to be deeply familiar with the sort of rhythms of Irish life, but that gets across without it being explicit ever.
2: Oh, that's great to hear, and and uh, that's amazing. You were you spent time here. It's um, yeah, I. I recognize the Dublin she described and, you know, I was in Trinity, uh, as you say, but and I also did that scholarship exam and lived in college. And um, although I come from Dublin and, you know, have a very different background, really, to either Marianne or Connell, that was a real point of connection. And what's amazing about it is, although it's changed a lot in the 25 years since I was there more, actually. In fact, I'm going to lie. I'm going to say 25 years since I was there. Let's just let that be on record. Sure. <laughs> uh, um, give me that one. There's no fact checking in podcasts. No, nobody. Just stay <laughs> off Google, everybody. Um, but I, yeah, I recognize the the feelings that they, they had. And it's funny, Sally says herself that she's, people say, well, which one are you? You know, are you Connell or Marianne? And she always says they are both aspects of her experience there. And I recognize that too. There were moments where like Marianne, I felt like, oh, I found my tribe and, you know I felt like I was growing and and finally could sort of you know like express myself better than I was sort of felt I could in secondary school, but on the other hand, I also spent a lot of time feeling intimidated, out of place, sort of overwhelmed by it, like Connell does at the beginning, so I thought that was a she just did a beautiful job of expressing like you say a universal truth about shifting from a smaller life into a bigger one as you get older and how daunting that is. But I think even if they'd gone, you know, even if even without that connection, I would have I would have wanted to do this book.
0: Well, I think you you do something so wonderful, though, with the show, too, where the person who you often choose to spend time with or or, or see the world through, they get their turn at odd times for what would usually be a love story. So you almost would think that we would be spending more time with Marianne before, after she feels like Connell has dumped her, for lack of a better term, back in Sligo. But instead, we really get this kind of maudlin, but beautiful episode with Connell kind of going through his life and then finally realizing at the end of an episode that he he misses her and that if he doesn't have her to talk to, he almost has no one to talk to. And it was such a brilliant move to not spend the entire time with the person who's probably crying and 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 we don't even know what's going on with Marion. We, we just kind of, we were left to wonder the same way he is. How did you sort of make those decisions about POV and how you were going to divvy up, not screen time, but almost where you were going to be directing the, the audience as a sort of emotional investment at any given time?
2: Well, all through the adaptation process, the great thing was we were all working pretty closely together. So there was Sally and Alice Birch. She's this brilliant. She wrote *Lady Macbeth*. Brilliant screenwriter and playwright from the UK. And then there was all of us involved in the production team as well. And it was very kind of and and some brilliant people. You know, brilliant script editor Chelsea Morgan Hoffman and Emma Norton, another great producer on the project. So lots of people gathered around this and talking about just these sorts of things, using the book as the basis and then sort of deciding how we would navigate it. And I think. It's an instinct that I've always had is just, you know, where the strongest emotion appears to be isn't always the most interesting place to look. Like, in a funny way, we all know, well, most of us know what it's like to love somebody and be dumped and, and the, that devastation. In a way, you kind of get that for free, I think, as a, as a viewer. But Connell's particular encounter with himself, At that point in the story where he realizes how ridiculous his anxieties were about the relationship and how his kind of obsession about what other people might think, how kind of that robbed him of something that felt like the most interesting place to sit at that point. And similarly, oddly, in the next episode, when we go to university, you know, splitting the episode really into two halves, the being with him for a period and being with her feels like you shouldn't do that. You uh-huh. know, in a drama, it feels like you should be intercutting and comparing and contrasting their lives, but actually taking her away from him for such a long time means that when you do finally bring her back, it has such power. And then you go with her for a period of time and you kind of have to catch up. And there's something really lovely, I think, and it's something I, believe in a lot in screen storytelling of finding ways to make the audience active, you know, uh, like jumping to a place where you don't expect to be having to kind of gather yourself. It kind of sharpens the attention. Oh yeah. It allows, it, it kind of creates a sort of lean in feeling, which I think that's the kind of attention capital that a, a filmmaker can really use then. So I don't know. It's just, there was, there was a lovely organic quality to how those decisions got made. And even in the edit, you know, like tweaks to that and and kind of reconfigurations of that sometimes found even more interesting ways to tell the story.
0: I mean, absolutely. I mean, we this kind of is the theme of our conversation. But we spend so much time when you watch a certain kind of. I mean, I, and I, I I love superhero movies, but like when when you watch a, a, a kind of big genre movie, where a lot of the work you're doing is basically like people telling you what you should know about characters rather than mm-hmm. showing you what you should know about characters. And yeah. and when you're sort of in the at Trinity with Marianne and you're sort of discerning what kind of relationship she has with Gareth and this other guy who likes her, and, but she's met Connell again. And you, all that stuff is filling in and you're you're learning so much about where she's been since the last time we've seen her. And it, it, you're right. It does make you pay attention. Is almost like you're watching an episode of, of Sherlock or something.
2: Yeah. It's funny how, like, it's a really interesting thing. So if you're, if you're working along genre lines and I'm like you I get great pleasure from that when it's well done but the way it works is even if people are taking unusual routes through they are still playing with the same kind of key like nodal points of the story because that's what the genre demands and so a lot of the time you're going oh okay that's the sort of thing I'm in or oh I thought I was in this but actually I'm in that and that's a great way of like that's a really playful relationship with the audience it's sort of like when you go, when you when you take the safety, you sort of take the safety net away when you work in a different way where, where you have to build it, the experience has to be built in and of itself and you don't have those kinds of expectations. You do have lots of story expectations still. I mean, listen, it's a love story and you know you want them to be together and I'm not suggesting that we've invented some new form or anything like that. But I think what's interesting about what we did was you just... You're trying to get out of the way and have it feel to the viewer that they are discovering these things themselves, even though you're seeding lots of things and hinting and and shaping. It's just if you get that level of kind of connection with an audience where they feel that they are piecing this together, I think the reward of the emotional kind of reward that that can bring is so exciting when it lands. Of course, if it doesn't land, you're left sort of with nothing. It's just a bunch of characters wandering around chatting to each other, but. I think you know that's the challenge and that's the exciting kind of uh, world to play in.
0: Yeah, and you find character in different kinds of action. I mean, you you wind up finding Connell's character in the way in which he works at the gas station. You know, he the way mm-hmm. the the sort of care and he's not kind of all elbows and knees. He's you know, he's he seems like a really quiet, considerate person just in watching the way he interacts with the world. And it makes it informs how you're gonna see his interactions with Marion, inevitably. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the directing partnership that you have for for lack of a better term on this series, because I, I love Teddy McDonald's work on Howard's End. I, I was wondering how yeah. the two of you worked in tandem and and how it was sort of finding a coherent vision for the series that would allow the two of you still to sort of do
2: do your auteurist a- things that directors love to do. <laughs> totally um well i think that it was a very conscious choice you know to find somebody like you know in quotes like a real filmmaker to take the second block because we actively wanted somebody to bring their vision to it and especially because i think the story does the tone does shift you know halfway through there is a sort of a, a dark turn in a way and it felt like the story was like solid enough to hold another Sensibility and to let that flourish. So, I think with Hetty, we talked early a lot, and then I think in a way, I I tried to you know I didn't want to impose any limits on what she did. I know how good she is, and I know how kind of like that she's not going to come along and do something which breaks the thread. So, I had the luxury of setting the show up of casting it and of creating the tone that I felt was right for it. And I knew that anybody with like as intelligent and as skillful as her would be challenged to find a way to incorporate her vision into what was already there. And that's pretty much what happened. I I watched, you know, she watched what I'd done. I watched her rushes and we talked a little bit, but generally it was just really fascinating for me to watch The kind of the way she leaned into aspects that I hadn't and the way she found things and and worked in a slightly different way, like visually, slightly more formal. And that felt like it suited what was going on. And, you know, so it, it was actually pretty seamless without there being a tremendous amount of, you know, detailed joint preparation or anything like that. Did you,
0: did you two block shoot stuff where you did all your episodes and then she did all of hers or were there ever weeks or, or times where there was sort of, you would do Monday and Wednesday and she
2: was working on Tuesday and Thursday. Was there much crossover? There was no crossover and that allowed us to basically do it like two films. Oh, that's interesting. So I worked for about 10 weeks. Then there was a hiatus of about a week to allow, you know, some things like key things to be prepped that you couldn't do while we were working. And she had, the, the crew remained the same apart from DOP. So I had this wonderful DOP called Susie Laval. And then Hetty worked with another wonderful Irish DP called Kate McCullough. And so Kate had been prepping and a, a new first AD, but everybody else pretty much stayed the same through the through the process. So yeah, it was, there was no block shooting. And I know that there's a lot, I mean, talking to other people on the crew, getting a sense, more of a sense of how a lot of TV is shot. It seems like there's a lot of double banking and a lot of people. But I think if you can divide it like this, it just gives everybody, each director, a sense of, of like, of really steering the boat for that, those weeks and not having anybody else kind of coming in and out of the process. Uh, So
0: I wanted to also, we can wrap up soon, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the people in in front of the camera because I would imagine with a book like Normal People, you know, it's almost like I remember reading, um, I remember when I was reading No Country for Old Men. And as I finished the book, I think they made the announcement that the Coens were going to make it and that these were the Mm -hmm. actors who were going to play the characters. And it might be one of the only times that I was ever outdone by the casting announcement where I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess that is Josh Brolin. That is Anto, uh, you know, that is yeah. Javier Bardem. Yeah, that's- yeah, and yeah, now yeah. I'll never see those characters in my mind again. I'll only ever see the. But I did you, when you were reading Normal People, did you see faces? And how did that impact the casting process?
2: Well, funny when I'm reading books, I have a strong feeling for the character, like uh, kind of what they would be like to be standing beside. But I don't visualize faces. Uh, and that's funny, because I know people do. And I'm, you know, pretty visual as a person, but I, but when I'm reading, it's the feeling I get for a character. And and I think also if I do to, or to the extent that I do a bit, I try to forget that when I come to casting it, because one thing I learned early on is I used to think that the job was to write like a really specific casting brief and the more intelligently described and the more entertaining to read, the better the casting brief. And actually I've gone the opposite way because all that happens if you do thats you're, you're, freaking out the casting director who's desperately trying to find somebody that has like all these specific traits Mm -hmm. and looks exactly like this. And then you're just not miss, you're missing the person who bears no resemblance to what you had in your head, who walks in and just sort of blows you away. So I knew very strongly the kind of person that, the kinds of people that they are. I mean, having grown up here and, and knowing the territory, but I didn't want to nail them physically at all because I, I just know that that's the road to kind of to missing things. Sure. Um, having said that, when I had that same feeling, when I saw Paul Mescal's self-tape, which was really early, was probably one of the first batches of self-tapes I looked at when we were just, you know, beginning to crank up the casting, you're thinking, okay, let's start and see where we are. And, you know, and I saw this tape and I thought, well, there he is. That's Connell. I mean, yeah. he, you know, and it felt like I was recognizing somebody that I'd seen in my head, even though I hadn't. And, same then when we, when Daisy came on the scene and then particularly when I got them together, it was like, just there they are. And one thing I've noticed, and it's, it's like one, I'm sure there's, there's psychological experiments that have been done to, you know, demonstrate this, but oddly, if you cast people who really understand the roles and really play them with the correct essence, so many people you'll see on social media or whatever going oh my God, that is exactly how I imagine them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that cannot be true. You know, it just can't be true. There's too many variations out there and there's no way that everybody saw them like that. So what they really mean is they're right, you know? And uh, and, and actually people's, oddly, I think people's memories of the book then is just like you were saying about Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem. And that is one of my favorite films, by the way. So it's, it, it's yeah, it's amazing casting. Yeah. You can't imagine that any other way now I think when, once you see the face if the essence is right then forevermore there's a kind of fusion of the two things in your imagination
0: well it's it's a it's an absolutely wonderful adaptation and it, I think it's going to bring people a lot of joy at a time when they could really use it if you want to stay on and we can talk better call Saul but I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time oh, I'll
2: leave you to I'll leave you to it and thanks so much Chris because it, it was a total pleasure to talk to somebody who likes it so much and gets it so well yeah thank you so um, much Lenny take care take care all the best.
0: Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by the hit Showtime series, Billions, starring Emmy Award winners Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis. This season, the battle between Chuck and Axe reignites, and in this ultimate game of one-upsmanship, no one stays at the top for long. The scheming and sabotaging will leave you guessing as loyalties shift and opposing forces collide. Don't miss the new season of Billions starting Sunday, May 3rd at 9 p.m., only on Showtime. To try a free month of Showtime, go to showtime.com and enter code Watch. This offer is for first-time subscribers only and expires May 31st. That's Showtime.com. The
1: code is The Watch.